Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be welcoming Phil DiPicciato. Phil is the founder and president of Octagon and has been at the forefront of the sports, music, and entertainment industry for more than 35 years. In addition to being an instrumental leader in the success of Octagon, Phil has also played a key role in societal progress, whether it is in globalization of sports or removal of tobacco sponsorships from professional tennis and the creation with Amazon of the groundbreaking Thursday night football streaming package, which featured the first ever female announcing team. I really enjoyed this conversation with Phil about his upbringing, about his growth as a leader in leading Octagon and the impact he has had in sports and marketing. I'm sure you will really enjoy listening to Phil, his stories, and his experience in guiding his organization too. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanatmahantavikoli.com. There is also a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast, Tuesday Conversations with Magnificent Changemakers from the Greater Washington, D.C. DMV region, like Phil and Thursday Conversations with brilliant global thought leaders, primarily leadership book authors of books that I believe can have a significant impact on our leadership of ourselves, our teams, and our organizations. Now, here is my conversation with Phil DePicciato. Phil DePicciato, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. It's very nice to be here with you. Thank you. Phil, having gotten a chance to get to know you a little bit and most especially learning some of the purpose you have baked in to the success of your organization over the years, I am thrilled to have this conversation and would love to start out first with your upbringing in Manhattan. What was that childhood for Phil like? I had what I considered to be quite an idyllic childhood. Manhattan was a place of activity and liveliness and culture. It was a center of activity, but not nearly at the scale or the pace that it is today. And I'm the first one in my family born in the United States. My parents were really my guides through my entire upbringing, and they had a global worldview. We, of course, lived in Manhattan, which is in and of itself, a little bit of an amalgamation of everything in the world. We like to say the best and the worst of everything. So I have very fond memories of my childhood. What then made you decide you wanted to pursue your education at Amherst, Phil? I wish I could tell you that it was a plan. But back in those days, the college search was very much more limited than it is now. My high school gave me the opportunity to apply to five colleges, only five. And they ranked them for me and for each student, we had 31 total of us in my graduating class. So it was very small and very personal. And they ranked for each of us the schools that they thought were stretched, the schools that they thought we had a reasonable chance to be accepted to, and the schools that were fairly safe. 
I applied to five schools and I went up to Massachusetts and visited Amherst on a snowy winter weekend. And I remember that the people were very nice and they were skiing down the steps of their dorm, which I thought was an experience that I had not yet had in New York City. I'm not sure that was the only thing that sold me, but I fell in love with the place on that first visit. So what was that experience like at Amherst? It was truly a liberal arts experience. We all got there, all men at that time, small school, maybe 350 students in the class, which was still 10 or 12 times bigger than my high school class. And it was in a beautiful bucolic setting, so very different from the noise of New York City. And so from the very beginning, it was an experience of meeting new people and having the opportunity to do an infinite number of things. I think most of us there at Amherst were not only encouraged, but almost by necessity had to participate in various aspects of the school, both the academic and the non-academic, because being so small and still trying to field all the sports teams, all the musical groups and the newspaper, et cetera, everyone had to multitask. We all had a very broad experience. We were busy all the time. I did not go overseas during my four years of college. I just enjoyed the presence there in central Massachusetts too much and didn't want to miss out anything there. It is an experience that still informs me today. And I enjoyed every minute of it, except for Chem 11, actually. I didn't enjoy Chem 11, <laughs> my first introductory chemistry course. I did until the final exam. That I didn't enjoy so much. I wonder, Phil, as we think about education, and there has been so much emphasis on STEM and channeling people much more into certain fields, where it sounds like we have lost some of the emphasis on the horizontal thinking that comes from a liberal arts education. Throughout your business career, how has that liberal arts education impacted you and made you a different and better leader? To me, it just comes quite naturally. I think my background and my upbringing, not only with my family, but everything I learned in grade school and high school, continued in college. I think the college probably chose me as much as I chose it. And sometimes I think these admissions departments really do understand the secret sauce because we all see people who we think should be accepted somewhere and maybe aren't or are accepted at one school, but not at the other. And it doesn't necessarily make intrinsic intuitive sense. It was just a place for me and it, it stretched me, but it also felt as if it was a continuation. And then in my career, I've been fortunate to feel that's a continuation as well. And we're dealing with people who are young and old from all different parts of the world, male and female, from every different culture imaginable. And I think that the liberal arts education has been part of how I look at the world from a very early age. You also had an experience going to summer to South Africa that pretty transformative for you, Phil. What was that experience like in South Africa? After my sophomore year in college, and I had gone to college to be either a biochemist or an evolutionary biologist, which was why the Chem 11 exam was really <laughs> painful to me. But I decided that I would spend that summer in South Africa from the biological and physical sciences side. And I worked as a geologist in a gold mine. This was very near the cradle of civilization. 
also a perfect spot to pursue my interest in evolutionary biology. But when I got there and I went with a friend who was working in the finance world, who had an internship in Johannesburg, it was quite a shock. I had never seen or even imagined really a situation where people were forcibly and visibly segregated for what in my mind was no good, valid reason whatsoever. And at the time there was a movement in colleges and otherwise across the world that the apartheid regime was really something that had to be somehow dismantled. So I got there and given the shock value and also the importance of the issue, not only there locally, but globally, I changed my major because the sciences would not let me write the thesis that I wanted to write anymore, which became prospects for a nonviolent transition in Southern Africa. I came back and had to stack up courses, a major that would give me enough credits to graduate that became anthropology. And the experience in South Africa was completely transformative because with various iterations subsequent to that, it led to the career that I ended up in, which was not something that I had ever contemplated. That's interesting. How do you see that experience leading to the career you eventually had? You were talking about the importance or the benefits of a liberal arts education. And I think today, and even back then, the focus was on understanding something deeply, maybe more than broadly, and preparing for a job or a career. And that certainly would have been my track in the sciences. But when one graduates with a degree that has a scope that's very broad, you can have various different elements that all fall under an anthropology major. One's eyes are opened up on that horizontal, but at the same time, one feels less prepared, less expert at any singular thing. I got very lucky after my graduation from Amherst. Through one of my relatives, I had the opportunity to do an internship in Washington, D.C. on prison reform. And South Africa, in many ways at that time, was in essence, a prison-based system. Lack of freedoms, lack of movement, a lot of regulations that were restrictive rather than encouraging for most of the population there. If I hadn't come to Washington and if I hadn't worked in prison reform, then I don't think I would have made that step logically to work for a year for the government and then go to law school. I don't know what I would have been doing. And then while I was in law school and in combination with a few other connections that I didn't really know I had, I ended up interning for a law firm here in Washington that had a sports practice. And subsequently, after a few years following my graduation, and I had continued to intern at that firm and then become an associate lawyer at that firm, that firm dissolved and it gave us the chance to create our own company. Sometimes one has to go out proactively and embrace the world and try to make things happen. And sometimes one just has to be receptive to letting the world come to you a little bit and keeping your eyes open and being aware that luck and circumstance and who you meet along the way will play a role in one's career and life and development that one could never have scripted. Talk about a potential setback or something that could be seen as a setback, which is a law firm dissolving, leading to you starting your own agency. Most people don't join a law firm expecting for it to dissolve. But before we get to that, I wonder, growing up, 
it sounds like you also played tennis. Did you aspire to be doing something professionally to do with sports, with tennis, which is why you ended up at a law firm specializing in sports law? Or did you just end up coincidentally working there? I'm not sure it was a coincidence, but it certainly wasn't intentional. Growing up, we were a very active family athletically and going to a very small high school with 15 male students in my class and maybe 60 in the entire high school, more or less anyone who could walk played every sport. (laughs) So in high school, I played every sport and then went to college. And again, it was a small college and we all had to do multiple things. And I had the opportunity to play intercollegiately in tennis and in squash while I was there. If I hadn't done that, and if I hadn't had an intrinsic understanding of those sports, maybe I wouldn't have been drawn to that law firm. And maybe I wouldn't have wanted to stay with it afterwards. But the business of sport is very different from being an athlete. And I was nowhere near qualified to be an athlete at a level higher than what I had played, which was at a division three college. And I had no anticipation that my career would involve sports whatsoever. I think the business side of sports is really an application of a professional skill set. The fact that I went to law school, I think was the propellant because I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity at a law firm had I not done that. And then I was able to apply the law and the other things that I had learned along the way to content that was based largely in sport. But again, the professional skill set is more legal training, communication, persuasion, contract drafting, negotiations, and general business management. And then you layer that with the broader perspective, maybe over liberal arts education, And the combination just happened to work out perfectly for me in this industry. Some of that skill must have contributed to your capabilities in spotting and signing talent. Signing Moses Malone, who became a multi-time MVP in the NBA. And then Steffi Graf, who still has a record of 377 weeks as the number one tennis player first person to get the Golden Slam because she won the Grand Slam singles and the Olympic gold. How were you able to start out an agency and then bring on talent like these two? One of my colleagues was really responsible for the relationship and association with Moses Malone. And what people may not remember is that after he made the move from high school to the pros, which happened before we had created our company, Many other athletes tried to do the same and just weren't as successful. Today, it seems as if it happens in large volume, but back then this was a unique circumstance and he was an exceptional person and an exceptional athlete who taught us as much as we taught him. And then Steffi Graf was a little bit the opposite. She's obviously a woman rather than a male and she's European rather than American. She was playing an individual sport rather than a team sport. And when she started, the tennis tour was title sponsored by Virginia Slims. And the name Virginia Slims was for a tobacco brand, but it became synonymous with women's tennis. So at the time, that brand was doing a lot to promote women's sport, which was not heavily invested in or promoted by many other brands. At the same time, though, they were borrowing the healthy, youthful, energetic image of women's tennis 
to make it seem cool to smoke. And that led to a whole set of other opportunities for us and stances that we decided to take. But Steffi enabled the sport of women's tennis to globalize because of who she was, because of where she came from, and because of how exceptionally good she is. I mean, just imagine today in tennis, we're living in a golden era with Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, among others, and then on the women's side, the Williams sisters. But during her career, Steffi won five and a half years worth of Grand Slam singles titles, which is really a remarkable record. And her longevity and consistency enabled her to really be a very influential brand, not only in tennis, but also for female athletes and sport as a whole. She has been incredible. And again, there is part of it, these athletes that need to be effective in the sport that they are playing. She was phenomenal in tennis, but there is also the business side that needs to be managed and done well, which is part of what you had done. Now, you also alluded to this, Bill. One of the things I love about the story of you growing Octagon is the fact that purpose has continually played a part in driving the organization. You mentioned Virginia Slims, which was a brand of cigarette and was synonymous with women's tennis, promoted women's tennis a lot. But also there was the association of this very unhealthy product with very healthy women playing tennis. You led the effort to move cigarettes away from tennis. What brought that about and how were you able to do that? I don't know whether my experience in South Africa had an influence on that or not. But when one sees something that seems unaligned, misaligned, and one has an opportunity to do something about it, for the good, not just to destroy something that exists, but to try to understand an entire ecosystem and figure out how to navigate it to the optimal benefit for everyone. It became apparent that there was that situation and therefore that opportunity in women's tennis. And I was very young at that time. And naivete probably plays an important role in optimism. But I remember walking into a meeting with the head of the tour, whose name was Jerry Diamond, and a woman named Peachy Kellmeyer. Peachy Kellmeyer is a member of the Tennis Hall of Fame. She was inducted within the last decade. She was one of the very first WTA Tour players, and she has been an administrator in the sport since then. Now we're talking again back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I walked into this meeting because the whole tour was focused on America. That's where Virginia Slim sold their products. That's where most of the tennis tournaments were. That's where the brand that was funding the tour had its marketing interests. It wasn't a global brand. And we had a client, which then expanded into a series of clients who were very talented in the sport, but at a very young age had to dislodge from their roots, sometimes from their family and play almost the entire year in the United States. That was a tremendous disadvantage to international players and a tremendous advantage for the American players. And that was what initiated the series of conversations as to how the tour should be structured. And I remember the head of the tour basically looking at me and thinking, here's some young kid. We built up this infrastructure. How disrespectful he must be. I'm imagining all of this, but you can understand that it was a reasonable imagination, <laughs> let's say. And during that meeting, 
Peachy Kelmeyer kept looking at me in a way that I considered to be encouraging and a little bit reassuring. She wasn't from the business of the game. She was from the game. And she knew, I think, what it must have felt like being supported at a time when women's tennis desperately needed the support, but also understanding that the women tennis players were probably selling their soul by also promoting a cigarette brand. And that effort to promote by Virginia Slims was extremely professionally done. She gave me enough of an encouragement, whether she intended to or not, to push things further. And then eventually, over the course of the next decade, as more and more players came from international locations and as the health conversation became a little bit more established, especially in the United States, we had an opportunity. But of course, in the business side, you need to have a business opportunity. You can't just live in philosophies or hypotheticals. And Procter & Gamble stepped up and we created an offer from them to the tour to replace Virginia Slims. It was a far better financial offer, but ironically, the tour declined. But in that process, Virginia Slims' parent, which was at that point, Kraft General Foods under the Philip Morris umbrella, stepped up to essentially match that other offer. They were able to continue the title sponsorship, but not under the Virginia Slims brand name, but they didn't have very much vested interest in it. And they weren't really prepared to take advantage of it globally. That step up to title sponsorship didn't last very long. And the tour has been flourishing on a purely global or truly global basis since then. And that's an outstanding perspective, Phil. I was speaking to Professor Ranjay Gulati from Harvard Business School. He's written a book, Deep Purpose. And he talks about the messiness of moving toward that purpose. It is not a clear-cut transition at one point saying, cigarettes are bad, drop the sponsorships, move on. It's recognizing the importance of something and pushing for and making it happen over a period of time because there are also financial realities. It's not a binary choice. It is consistently working toward that purpose. You also mentioned the global aspect of these players. One of the things that you were able to capture with your company is you saw opportunity in this globalization. Why did you see and how did you see the opportunity in the globalization and how were you able to take advantage of it? We were able to take advantage of it because no one was doing it. And sometimes it's a good business strategy to go where others aren't. Sometimes it's also a good business strategy to do things that are already evident and feel that one can do it better or at a better price point. But in this case, the world was much smaller than now. So we were able to afford to be on many continents, literally from our first day in operation. And I think it was part of our upbringings where we would never think about constraining our business or constraining our point of view simply based on geography. We had an office in London, in Paris, in Melbourne, and in Tokyo very quickly after we established the company. And of course, some of these sports, all the individual sports in particular, are global by their essence. Now, at the time, the Soviet Union was relatively closed, as was Eastern Europe. China and Southeast Asia were relatively closed. It wasn't as if we had the same playing field as we do now. But we were at the front end of a trend. I'm not sure we recognized that at the time. But we certainly recognized that the United States 
was preeminent, but also a little bit cluttered and that not every sport and particularly the individual sports didn't always attract the best performers to come here. One of the reasons for the massive success of the major sport leagues in the United States, which of course are all team sports and are all male, is that the best athletes in the world, the best talent, the best coaches come to the United States to play. But in an individual sport where everyone gets to choose where he or she plays, how much they play, what they wear, how they act, then you have a much broader international playing field. And one management construct that we work with and keep in mind all the time, we call moving from or to and. You said it's not a binary choice when you're looking at purpose-filled missions. I would say that's true in business also. It, it wasn't a choice that we would be in the United States or we would be in Europe, for example, or in Asia. One has to be careful to be practical, to always understand that there is a cost and not spread oneself too thin. I mean, empires have fallen by spreading themselves too thin economically. But it's a question, again, of practicalities and priorities. What are the most important things you can do and feel that you can be efficient in your spend and in your time in order to be effective with the results? And sometimes one just has to take a chance. I think we just got very lucky, to be honest with you. I think we were there at the right time and we maybe had the right vision. And then the other thing I would add to that is people. Going back to that very first meeting I had with regard to the WTA tour, if it had been two different people sitting in that meeting, I'm not sure that we would have had the same outcome or the same roadmap. Very few people can make very big differences. And we've seen that in the world most recently that they can make very big positive differences, but they can also make very big negative differences. We tried to use our influence where we could in the best possible ways. And fortunately, we were right just enough of the time that we still exist today. You have been able to do really well with that. One of the things that you mentioned, Phil, is the opportunity that many people refer to as blue ocean strategy in that you looked at places where people were not in. At that point, it was global. And with your perspective, you added to that. There was an and and a testing and it worked out. People play a huge role with it. Phil, you also have a very strong culture and the culture is built on four pillars, expertise, dedication, integrity, and collaboration. A lot of organizations and senior leadership teams and executives have pillars of their culture or values. In some instances, they have them on the wall or they have them laminated cards. However, there is a separation from the statements that are written, then the actions as exhibited by the leaders or the way the organization behaves. How do you make sure that the entire organization is aligned with respect to not just the beliefs, but also actions and behaviors on these four pillars that you have for the organization? First and foremost, we rely on everyone's good judgment. We trust each other. I have had a very exceptional experience being able to rely on exceptional people. And we all simply need to make sure that we're aligned, that we can achieve as much as we can for our clients. No one wants to hire someone who isn't expert in the subject matter they're being hired for. So I think expertise probably is an assumed pillar, 
but it's still an important one to restate. The second one is, I think, maybe equally obvious. It doesn't matter how much you know if you're not willing to apply it. Very consistently, all the time, dedication to clients, commitment to clients, reliability to clients, and to do it in a way that is ethical and responsible, that goes all the way to just returning phone calls. And then the world has become so complicated that no one can do this oneself. We've all heard that it takes a village to raise a child, takes a whole global team to represent a client well. That's where the collaborative element comes through. But we hire based on those four elements. We do our due diligence in speaking to people to make sure that we get that as right as we can. And then we repeat it constantly. Every year, all the time, I am completely confident, but more importantly, I think all of my colleagues are equally confident that everyone around them shares those same beliefs, which enables sharing, it enables trusting, it enables handing things off so that they're done the most effectively. So I would say it's an understanding that they need to form a basis, not the sole judgment, but a basis of the hiring process because hiring done right is extremely valuable to a company and hiring not done right is extremely costly to an organization. We have very little turnover, which we think is a good thing, but then we're reliant on growth because one has to keep adding new ideas, new people, new concept. Because we retain people at a very high level, we also have a little bit of growth pressure, not extreme, but a little bit because we want to keep on adding new voices into the mix. That's a great way to keep those new people excited and engaged. You also have baked in purpose in the organization. We address the tobacco sponsorship that you help remove. You've helped focus on globalization with an emphasis on local empowerment and gender equality. What is it that makes elements of purpose into all these different projects and priorities? that you initiate? Importantly, it's not only me, it's really all of us. We've got about a thousand full-time staff and many more that work with us for part of the year on certain projects and others. And going back to those core elements again, I think it's fundamental that one has a sense that the world is about other people. Service is really about leadership serving as opposed to leadership dictating. So I take no credit for why we are able to do purposeful things. For us, it's really just automatic. It's partly driven by our clients and business partners. And I think it's partly driven by our own sensibilities because no one today should look at the world and either give up or be blind to the realities. We're dealing with highly influential people. They have an opportunity to make positive impacts in the world, help them do that. And in accordance with helping them do that, we're able to do it a little bit ourselves. That's well said in that it is all the people in the organization that said leadership matters and leadership sets the pace. I am excited as I look at the different areas that you have set the pace for the organization, Phil. As you are reflecting on your career up to this point, when we look back at it, let's say a few years from now, when you decide to transition out and spend less time focused running Octagon, 
What would you hope for your legacy to have been, both with respect to the organization and with respect to the field in general, and then the impact on society beyond? I'm the wrong person to assess what my legacy should be, my job, and my personal inclination is to help other people assess what their legacies should be. One of the bits of advice that we give to our business partners and clients is to try to stay in the moment. First, because one can't always predict an outcome. For example, I am very bad at writing three or five-year business plans because as I'm writing them, I know that they're going to be largely wrong. And that violates my sense of efficiency. I try to stay in the moment, but we advise our clients and business partners that if they look backwards with too much nostalgia, they might feel that they can't replicate things that they've done in the past and the future. And that's not a very positive thought. And if they look too far into the future and ignore the past, they will probably get anxious because these days in particular, one really can't control one's own future. The most enabling, the most secure, the most positive way to look at the world is to stay in the moment, to always be conscious of one's surroundings, to treat people in the way that is completely authentic and sustaining, and that the future will in part take care of itself. And in part, that's what we're here to do for them. But I'm not sure I've ever asked anyone to do that for me. And I'm glad that I didn't because it's our job to help other people. One of the things I love about you, Phil, is we had met a few years back at an economic club luncheon and we're sitting next to each other and had a conversation. And when you talk about living in the moment, there are a lot of times that at these conversations, people have a hard time staying in the moment. One of the strengths that you have is the ability to stay in that moment and focus on the individual you're interacting with. And in that case, it was me, which is a real superpower of not just leadership, but human connection. I love how you mentioned about that need to stay in the moment, not just with respect to the outside world and with respect to planning, but even with respect to one-on-one interactions. A lot of times we have a tough time staying in the moment. That human connection comes from that staying in the moment. You have a real ability and superpower in doing that, which I truly appreciate. Now, Phil, are there any leadership resources or practices you typically find yourself referring to or recommending to others as they aspire to become more effective, impactful leaders? We tell everybody to speak to as many people as they can, that one can learn what one wants to be like, but also what one doesn't want to be like by what one hears and sees in other places around the world. There isn't a singular book or person or media platform that we would refer people to because we tend to go very much toward that personalization end of the spectrum rather than the scale side. But I think it's important and maybe a little bit ironic that the whole theme of being authentic and staying in the moment and using good judgment is exactly what creates the long-term opportunity. And as the world races toward these short-term outcomes because they're more controllable or they're more financially predictable, people lose, I think, a little bit of sight or could lose a little bit of sight on the fact that the most powerful element of building a brand is sustainability. And the best way to create sustainability is to stay in the moment. 
because all of those moments added together become a long-term reality. We advise people toward that combination. It's not typically a singular resource that we send them to. It's more of a philosophy. It's really saying it's okay. Whoever you are is okay. One of the expressions that I really dislike is when someone is very difficult in a business deal or they create an outcome that maybe isn't entirely fair and they say, it's just business. Business is no different from who one is. It's a way that we understand how we divide our 24 hours a day, maybe. But I don't believe that people should act differently in business from the way they do in their community life, from the way they do in their personal lives. So if there is a leadership environment that we try to create for everybody, it's just that. This isn't a job. It's not even a career. It's a lifestyle. Everything that one does connects with everything else. Maybe that's the liberal arts education or the global worldview that my parents gave me. But it's a very simple way of living life because one doesn't have to remember what lane one is in at any particular point in time. And I hope all of us to respect other people that same way, rather than making it binary, rather than expecting them to act differently in different situations. If we can accomplish that for ourselves, then I think we're giving ourselves the best chance to be around for a while longer. That is beautifully put, simple yet powerful, Phil. I really appreciate you taking the time to share some of your upbringing some of your business experience and success and values with the partnering leadership community. Thank you for this conversation, Phil DiPicciato. Thank you so much. I listened to your podcast series with real admiration. I'm just flattered that you wanted to talk to me. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.